Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden. This is episode 92 and I'm one of your hosts, Chris. And I'm the other one of your hosts, Elsa. One thing that's going to happen in this episode is sort of already spoiled in the title because we will see the printing press, one of the great inventions of history, finally arrive on the shores of Sweden. But first, Chris is going to talk a bit about a staple occurrence in Swedish history, namely wars with Russia. Yes, but before I do that, uh, how about you tell us what the Swedish phrase of the week is? And uh, we tell the listeners that it's super snowy outside. Um, We're recording this way in advance in our sort of break month of November. Uh, It's the 25th of November and there's been uh, a load of snow that's coming in the last couple of days. So that's very cool. It is very cool. And there's also currently someone endeavoring a parallel park up the hill on the quite slippery snowy road. So good luck to you, driver out there. Hopefully they uh, put their winter tires on in time. But the Swedish phrase for this week is tröst för ett tigerhjärta. And once again, it was sent to us by longtime listener and Swedish phrase contributor Magnus. So thank you, Magnus. And trust for att tiger hjärta uh, translates to English as comfort for the heart of a tiger, which uh, sounds something like Sylvester Stallone might say in one of his films. <laughs> but is this meaning when you give a tiger a cuddle or something like that? I mean, might be. I'm no expert on wildlife of any kind, but I'd probably caution against cuddling tigers if at all possible. What it means is that it is of little or no comfort, perhaps implying that the heart of a tiger is strong, so doesn't require very much comfort. I don't know. An example of how to use the phrase could be, after she'd been robbed of all her furniture in her flat, her insurance did pay out, but only 10% of the original value. So that's trust for a tigerhjärta. That's comfort for the heart of a tiger. It's not much of a comfort. My brain is not really working very well because there's definitely a phrase similar to that in English. Not similar in the sense of a tiger, but something that you would say if something isn't very helpful. Anywho, cool. I don't think I've ever heard it in Swedish. um, So maybe it's not very common, but it seems like it's a thing. Yeah, I guess it's not very common. It describes a very particular circumstance. So... I'd say it's a phrase that people know, but perhaps don't use that often. Now, Chris, tell us a bit about fighting with Russia and fighting around the Baltic Sea. Yeah, in general. And this is something we said we didn't quite have time for during our last episode, what with Sten Stilra becoming regent, uh, the Battle of Brunkebay against King Christian, and the founding of Uppsala University. So we'll go slightly back in time and cover some of the years in the 1470s that we also covered last time, but instead look at what went on out east. Sounds great. Take it away. And so this is War 1 of 4 that happened all during the time period we covered in the last episode. And for most of these conflicts, we're going to be talking a lot about the Axelson Toth family, which has come up every now and then so far in the story. If you remember in episode 90, we had another great acronym like KKB, but this time it was for E-A-T, or EAT, for Eric Axelson Toth. And EAT is from a border nobility family and took over 
the position of regent for a while in the 1460s. He's been on the council for the last 20 years or so, and his father, Axel Pedersomtot, was an influential nobleman in the pro-Kalmar Union ranks. The Swedish family's close connection to their Danish neighbour in the Union can be seen in how Eric's brother, who has his seat of power in Blekinge on the Danish side of the border, has actually been on the Danish council since the 1450s, and their half-brother Olaf was the Mask of Denmark too, so calling them a Swedish family is actually pretty wrong. They are really a border nobility family in every way. Very much so, and right now in the 1470s, the Axis on Tot family rules a lot of Finland and also Gotland. EAT, EAT, is out east in Finland, is the commander of Viboy. Lars, Axis on Tot commands Raseboy near Åbo, and Ivar Axis on Tot commands Gotland. Some historians think they wanted to build a state within the state as they were making sure they were in control of a lot of key areas whilst Stensturre was regent. It starts to get interesting in this decade as the Tots managed to get drawn into a conflict in Livland, so that's modern-day Estonia and Latvia, which had been conquered from the pagan locals during the Livonian Crusade. This was where that separate group of Teutonic knights were based, called the Livonian Order. By the time we get to the 1470s, the Livonian Order has a lot of internal conflicts, and their new Grand Master was deposed and arrested by another faction after just a year in his post and then put in prison. His brother Ernst writes to the Tots asking for help, who write to the leader of the Teutonic Knights on his behalf, but nothing happens. So the Tots then invade modern-day Estonia in 1474, and men are sent to Reval, which is the city that's today called Tallinn, and also to Narva in 1475, but nothing comes of this because the imprisoned master then dies, in prison in 1476, and the Tots really have, have nothing else to do with this. Yeah, because the whole reason for them going there was to release this Grand Master and he died in prison. So, yep, that's War One, if you can call it a war, that's War One over. And at the same time as this expedition to Estonia, there's also drama with Russia. Because ever since Eric Axelsson Tot got V-Boy Castle in 1457, he's kind of had a thing for hating the Russians. There was a peace deal agreed uh, in 1468, but by now, in the middle of the 1470s, it's starting to fall apart a bit. And that's because Eric Axelsson Tot has built a castle right on the Russian border near where Karelia is on the big group of lakes out there. And he calls it Nislot, or New Castle, a great name there. And the Novgorodians aren't too happy about this because it's built in a bit of an unclear area in terms of recent peace treaties and agreements. When they're looking at their map, they think it might be Russian, and when the Swedes look at their maps, they say it's Swedish. And inevitably, after building this castle, some retaliation from Russia occurs. A tax is even raised all the way back in Sweden to build up the defence in the east and put some new troops there. 
There are small skirmishes with little or no real territorial or political consequences, and yeah, it all fizzles out, and a new peace treaty is signed in 1476. This is so common in this area where, oh, stabby, 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 oh, nothing's really happening, let's have a fake peace again. <laughs> what is of massive political consequence, however, is an event that happens outside of Sweden in 1478. A lovely chap called Ivan III of Moscow defeats Novgorod and claims the vast majority of its lands for himself. The claiming of Novgorod alone nearly doubled the size of his realm, and soon after the formal annexation of Novgorod, Ivan began calling himself Grand Prince of Moscow and All Russia. So yeah, that's it. Novgorod is gone. They've just been uh, sucked up and hoovered up by this Ivan the Third chap of Moscow. Because we are really seeing Russia unifying as the territory we know it later in history. Among other things, Ivan made the double-headed eagle Russia's coat of arms and expanded its territory a lot. It's from now on that we can really start calling this political territory Russia and the people Russians after centuries of the bit closest to Finland and Sweden being Novgorod and then there being Moscow and many other bits. But now in the 1470s, we really see Russia unifying as one entity. Yeah, it's technically not called Russia yet, um, it's, uh, but like also says, the area of what is now Russia is now starting to be united, but it doesn't technically become Russia yet on like the map, but uh, we're going to call them Russians from now on. And that's really interesting because both Novgorod, an enemy of Sweden for 500 odd years or so nearly, is gone, but it's being replaced by the enemy for the next 500 odd years. So it's a, it's a bit poetic there in the symmetry between the two things. But also in 1478, there was more drama back down in Riga, because the Archbishop of Riga, whose city is in the middle of the German order's territory, he starts his own personal fight with the order, uh, for local political reasons we really don't have time to get into. But it's one that he can't really complete by himself, because he's fighting the whole German order, and he's just the Archbishop of a little city there. So he needs help, and just like last time, the Swedes get asked to intervene in local local problems in the Baltic. And the Axels and Tots send five ships and 200 men to help the Archbishop in his beef with the Order. But this is obviously not that many men, and even they can't help him win when the Archbishop runs out of his own men to fight properly. It's all becoming a bit of a disaster. And it doesn't take long for the Swedes to realise they can't win this war for the Archbishop, and so they surrender to the German Order on the condition that they're allowed to just sail away home freely and just say, um, we give up. Can we go home now? And uh, they agree. It doesn't end so well for the Archbishop, though, because he's arrested and locked up with the rest of his followers, and a new German-friendly successor is appointed as Archbishop. Whilst this is a pretty pointless campaign, when combined with the previous expedition, it shows the beginnings of a Swedish desire to start expanding south of the Gulf of Finland and into the Baltics, an area that they will keep eyes on for a long time to come. But now, let's head back to the Novgorodian, now Russian, border. Oh, this is starting to get my head spin around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm sorry, it is a bit confusing. 
But the Swedes haven't stopped working on the fortress of Nyslott, despite knowing it is really annoying the Russians. EAT is in charge of this construction project. Nyslott was first made of wood and earth banks, but now it is to be built up in stone. The Russians are quite dismayed, to say the least, and EAT wrote that when the workers had to go and fetch the sand and stone to continue with the construction, they needed to be escorted by soldiers, as Russians had started to attack the area. It is, of course, built right on the border, like we said, so it isn't difficult for the Russians to start to harry the building process in this way without a giant invasion army being raised. Nobody likes building delays, though, so in 1480, Eric Axelson Todd goes to attack the Russians to put an end to this nuisance. He's probably received reinforcements from Sweden before doing this, as the force he raises manages to raid 120 kilometres, or about 70-odd 80 miles, into Russian lands. A later historian says he killed many Russian local people, which would be typical of the style of fighting we see in the East against the Russians, where few prisoners were taken on either side, and villages, farms and towns were just as a legitimate target as an enemy army. And one quote says that he had killed both people and beast, men and women, young and old, in many thousands during this raid into Russia. It is pretty brutal indeed, and that would probably be why the Russians were not crying any tears when Erik Axelsson Tot, or Eat, draws his last breath in the following year, 1481. The important V-Boy castle is handed over to his brother, Lars Axelsson Tot, who continues this relation adventure against Russia. But in 1482, a peace treaty is signed that is actually relatively successful, is going to last for over a decade. Lars himself, though, will die the following year, 1483. And the Swedes are going to want this bit of a breathing room of this decade of peace, because a lot of politics is going to be happening back home, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly. But this means we've now caught up to where we got to last time when we were focusing on Sweden, when we saw King Christian dying in 1481. It's nice and tidy, isn't it? We did indeed end the last episode with King Christian dying in May 1481. In Denmark and Norway, he is due to be succeeded by his son, Hans. But in Sweden, well, things are, to no one's surprise, a bit more complicated. Hans, by the way, is sometimes called Johan or Johan II in Swedish sources. Basically, he's baptized with the Latin name Johannes. And back then, that became Johan in Swedish, but Hans in Danish. But then over time, he's become more frequently referred to as Hans in Sweden as well. So that's what we'll call him in the podcast. Although I'll call him Hans instead of Hans. That's up to how you want to pronounce the vowel sound. And then, just to confuse it even more, in some English history books and on websites, he's called John. But Hans, Hans, John, Yuan, 
it's all the same guy. Johannes. <laughs> yes. All of these blokes are the same guy. And in 1481, this guy is 26 years old, and he's already married to Christina of Saxony, who naturally then becomes Queen Christina. In terms of his personality, Hans is described to go against the grain of many of the things that were very popular for royals and nobility at this time. He didn't like big feasts and wasn't that enthusiastic about all things to do with knights, so the chivalrous ideas and hosting big tournaments or hunting and all that kind of stuff. That's not really him. Uh, he instead preferred smaller parties where maybe someone played music and where he'd have an opportunity to play a game of dice. We don't know what dice games he played, but whatever it was, it seems like he was quite good at it because he's known to have won a lot of money from these games. A gambling king, that's a fun fact. I don't think we've heard that about any of the previous kings. Although they gamble with their sort of like military and political choices, but not like in pure money gambling terms. <laughs> yeah, I also feel like a few people must have made the tactical choice not to beat the king. So maybe he wasn't actually that good at dice games, just people let him win. We don't know. Yeah, there was a great story that I heard on a uh, British football podcast where Gary Lineker, a very famous uh, English footballer, he was in Argentina and he played the ex-president of Argentina at golf. He was about to lose in the last shot but made an amazing shot so it was a draw and then afterwards all the Argentinian sort of bodyguards and advisors were really worried because the president always wins but the president came up to him and said thank you for not making it so I won because he's just so used to winning these like sort of fake games of golf and so it's probably the same with Hans he, he was just uh, winning all these games because people made him win we could only speculate now Hans or Hans I'm now changing the way I'm saying it too is uh, getting confusing uh, but it should have been relatively easy process for him to become king both Christian and KKB, who had previously been the big two players in the Kalmar Union and arch enemies with each other, are both dead. So this could be the opportunity for a fresh start for the Kalmar Union. And moreover, there is actually an agreement that all three kingdoms of the Kalmar Union have signed that says upon the death of Christian, Hans will become king. But since that was agreed way back in 1458, during a period when Christian was actually king of Sweden, it's in doubt whether it's going to still be valid and upheld in Sweden. Because, yeah, 20 years have passed since then. Christian has been kicked out. We've had various regents rule Sweden. We've had KKB come back. And now there's Stenstura, who's the regent. So not many people are thinking this agreement is going to be taken for granted. Or at least the Swedes with Stenstura at the helm aren't going to take it and just accept it like that. No, they want to negotiate what sort of powers this new king is going to have, what role they will have as members of the council and the nobility and all those other things we've seen them do many times before when it came to negotiating how the Kalmar Union would be ruled. And this time, it's complicated. Not that it was perhaps ever uncomplicated when the three Scandinavian kingdoms sat down to negotiate how they were going to be ruled and by who in this Kalmar Union. But this time, it's particularly complicated. Because even though he's due to succeed his father in Denmark and Norway, the councils there still want separate negotiations with Hans. And then he needs to negotiate with the Swedish council, and then they all need to meet and negotiate on a pan-union level. 
Yeah, well, we know it's not easy being a union. And as Hans is busy negotiating with all these various councils, he runs into problems with the one that he thought maybe was going to be the easiest. And that's with Norway, which has been the weakest of the three kingdoms for a long time by now, having been decimated by the Black Death over a hundred years previously, and has really struggled to recover since then. It's essentially just been ruled by Denmark for most of this time. But by now, the Norwegian local councillors pipe up and demand more power for themselves. They want Norway to be more autonomous within the Union, and then to be less influenced by the Danish and Germans who've been put in power there over the years. They turn to Sweden for support, and in a meeting in Oslo in 1482, the two countries promised to lend each other support in the case it was ever needed against Hans. Then, after a year of negotiations back and forth, it looks like the councils and the king are ready to sit down for one final big pan Kalmar union meeting to cross the last T's and dot the last I's. And what better place to hold a big pan Kalmar union meeting than in the town of Kalmar. Yeah, a classic venue there. I mean, it really helps to have Kalmar in the name when you're debating the Kalmar union. In truth, this is the place to be. This particular meeting will go down in history as the Kalmar Recess of 1483. There has been a sort of pre-meeting in Halmstad earlier the same year, but this is the big fancy one. So what do they agree on? Uh, well, basically, the agreement they reach is a victory for the councils of all three kingdoms, because the king agrees to hand over a lot of power to the councils. He promises to rule together with them and make them a part of the process of appointing local commanders and bailiffs to positions in towns, castles, and counties. He also has to promise to not get involved in church matters, like appointing bishops, but rather leave that to the church and the papacy down in Rome. And a uh, quick thing, there's now a really big sort of digger truck thing going round, scooping up all the snow outside the window. So if you hear the beeping of the truck reversing, uh, you get to hear a little bit of what's going on here. Maybe it's Homer Simpson in The Snowplow King. Mr. Plow. Mr. Plow. Such a good episode. Now, the Danes and the Norwegians, they say, great, this sounds good, let's shake hands on it and call it a day. And they elect Hans King. He's then formally crowned in each country separately, according to their traditions. It's worth just saying that throughout his reign in both those countries, Hans will do everything to circumvent what was agreed upon in Kalmar and trying to secure more power for himself. Hans was a big fan of the classic divide-and-conquer technique of ruling, so he tried to get more power for himself by continuously spreading division with the council and undermine their positions. All he had to do was just get his foot in the door first. His favourite way of spreading division was to appoint members of the lower nobility, so kind of up-and-comers, to positions of power. These men of the lower nobility were likely to be more loyal to him, since they owed their power and positions to him, than the high nobility that dominated the councils. So that way, Hans could leave the nobility divided amongst themselves and thus secure more power for him. 
But what about Sweden? I hear you, uh, dear listener, asking. Well, the Swedes were represented in Kalmar, but noticeably one important man was missing, and Sten Sture himself was not there. Uh, he said he was sick, uh, but historians, much like uh, any uh, school teacher that get a note saying that their kid is uh, sick on the day of the exam or something like that, were pretty unanimous in their assessment that he was just staying away to make it impossible for the Swedes to agree to the recess and elect Hans as king. So the Swedes say, sorry, we'll have to delay your election till the following summer. Whether or not Stensterer was sick, we'll never know, even if we can guess he probably wasn't. But one thing is for certain, and Stensterer is not in a hurry to move things along or implement any changes. He is now in Sweden king in all but name, as his super powerful position as regent. And even though the Kalmar recess and the agreement there offers extensive powers to the council nobility, he will obviously have to give up his power as regent if it was to go through and elect Hans. You can't have a regent and a king. And frankly, Hans is in no rush to implement the agreement either. He doesn't like it, since he thinks it limits his powers way too much. So he thinks he stands to gain from delaying the implementation and see if he can try and get a better deal down the line. Well, there we go. No king for all of the Kalmar Union this time either. Stensterer himself, though, isn't powerful enough to break away from the Union completely either, and he's also smart enough to know not to try. He continuously shows the intention of wanting to preserve the Union, even if, like we saw with the Kalmar recess, he actually doesn't make any steps to make sure this happens. In fact, he's consciously making moves in the opposite direction, but just never taking that final step towards full independence for Sweden. Yeah. Stensdorer's position has grown increasingly stronger in the 1470s and continues to do so now we're in the 1480s. But it isn't always easy to rule Sweden, especially not when the castle counties, not in his control, were able to retain a lot of power and influence. We mentioned some of his actions and thoughts last time around, but let's just recap Stensdorer's main plan briefly. He had learned from his predecessors and he made sure to not do the one thing that annoyed pretty much everyone. Stensdorer did not raise any taxes. He made do with the income the crown got from traditional taxes, from mining and fines and that regular type of thing, plus his own pretty sizable private income. Yeah, we made the comparison to George H.W. Bush there with the no new taxes uh, quote. And we said last time for Stensturer how smart it was to not do this, because almost every rebellion was at least partly to do with money up until this point, and about how economics and the wealth of the country was distributed. And of course, the peasants hated any of these tax rises. So by not changing any of the taxes, he wasn't poking the beehive of Swedish political violence that was just always sitting there on the table waiting for someone to poke it. But like also said, Stensdura did get personally rich by acting on the edge of what was lawful. As one historian put it, he had the tendency to mix state coffers with his own personal wallet, and that didn't mean him emptying his wallet into the state coffers. It was more often than not the other way around. Yeah, I mean, that is a very nice way to phrase it. Basically, Stensdura is corrupt and powerful. 
yeah, both in one package. And he really did everything he could to try and outmaneuver other noblemen who might try and take his power away from him, so he limited their power. His main rivals in terms of power and wealth are the family we've talked a lot about so far, the Axels and Toth family. And in 1483, they actually come together and think that Stensturer has finally gone too far. At a council meeting in Stockholm, they instigate what is essentially a coup to try and depose Stensturer and have him replaced as regent by another nobleman called Arvid Troller. The coup fails, but Stensturer is not one for forgiving and forgetting even if he doesn't like raising taxes. Instead, he'll spend the next few years plotting and gathering troops for an attack against the Axelsson Tots. To get the rest of the council on board with his plans, he says that the Axelsson Tots are engaged in piracy on the Baltic Sea, which there were indications that they were actually doing this. Stensture argues that this is bad for Sweden because it annoys the Hansa and the Netherlands, which are important trading partners for Swedish exports. We briefly mentioned the Netherlands a few times, but this is a good point to state that the Netherlands are becoming increasingly important in terms of trade right now. Dutch ships are becoming more important as they're threatening the Hansa's dominance of trade in the Baltic Sea. To cut a long story short, they're sailing around Jutland and into the Baltic Sea and cutting into that trade, at the same time as Antwerp is taking a lot of the trade in the West that the Hansa stronghold of Bruges used to dominate. Yeah, you can go really deep into this relationship between the Netherlands and the Hansa, but basically, yeah, the Hansa are annoyed because the Netherlands are increasingly taking more and more of their share of the trade in the Baltic Sea. And the situation in Sweden comes to blows in 1487, so a few years later, when Stensturer attacks Boyholm Castle, which is held by Ivar Axelsson Tot, and that's on Erland. He also takes Stegeboy and Rasaboy castles, which are held by the Axelsson Tot family. Ivar Axelsson Tot moves away to Gotland, where he will make a nice little profit from hijacking ships and generally engaging in piracy and other unlawful activities on the Baltic Sea, so it kind of proves Stensura's point there. And also, it's good to see that piracy is still a lucrative trade around these parts. Uh, it's been a continuous theme for a long time now. Indeed, but for Ivar Axelsson Top personally, his pirating days don't last that long because they come to an end that same year when he dies. And he was actually the last of the eight Axelsson Top brothers who'd all ruled over various castles and areas in Sweden and been important members of the council for the last couple of decades. And because Ivar was the last major person in the family, you know, there are other people hangers-on elsewhere, but it was these eight brothers who were the main players in the family. And this means when Ivar dies, Stensturer has pretty much taken over any land that that family once owned, apart from Gotland. Because the same year that Ivar dies, King Hans had rocked up with a fleet on Gotland, but instead of waiting to die and the island and castle there being given over to Stensturer, Ivar Axelsson handed it over, the whole island and its important castle of Viesboy, two hands without a fight. So perhaps he, yeah, he thought this could be one last thing he could do to snub Stensturer, giving it to the king that isn't even king of Sweden yet. 
and his main enemy. Stian Stora seems to think that Gotland is not worth fighting over, because later the same year he actually meets with Hans and says that if he just gets Boyholm Castle on Erland back, which has fallen into Danish hands, he'll recognise Danish superiority over Gotland, it's fine. And that's it, done. The two shake hands, swap Baltic Sea islands with each other, and then Ivar Axelsson top dies. Happy days. Yep, actually, it's about to not be so happy days for Stan Sture, but before we get on to that, let's talk about what we mentioned at the start of the episode, and in the title of the episode, the arrival of the printing press to Sweden. Yes, in the last episode we saw the opening of Sweden and Scandinavia's first university up in Uppsala in 1477, and now we have the arrival of the printing press. So Sweden's really making some intellectual and cultural strides here. Yeah, we're finally coming out of the backwaters and joining the rest of late medieval Europe here when it comes to bookmaking and learning. Now, it's important to mention that in Asia, and particularly in China and Japan, there had been printing and paper making since the first centuries AD, but it doesn't get a breakthrough in Europe until the 1400s. And I guess many of us are familiar with the name Johann Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press with moving types and all that kind of stuff. And that meant you could reset them and more efficiently print all these various books and pamphlets. However, as is often the case with these things, there are many people working with this and coming up with essentially the same thing at the same time. So it might be unfair to give Gutenberg all the credit for this, but nevertheless, it's his printing of the Bible in 1455, which is usually seen as the seminal moment in the history of the printing of books. So it'll take nearly 20 years from Gutenberg's famous printing of the Bible in 1455 before the printing press reaches Sweden. And it does so through a printer from Lübeck called Johann Snell, who moves to Stockholm. Here he prints the first book known to be printed in Sweden, and that's in 1483. Yeah, that was very nice of him. Or some people might say that was very Snell of him. Uh, Which is a great, great pun because Snell in Swedish means nice. (laughs) Great, I think, is a bit of an exaggeration. That's probably the best bilingual pun we've made so far on the podcast. Johan Snell was Snell to make the first book in Sweden. Saying it twice did not make it any more fun. Well, and Johan wasn't that Snell for us in the modern day, because he's printed this book in Latin, and it's called Diagolos Creatorum Moralizatus, or The Created Being's Best Moral Conversations in English. Is it? Is that really what it's called? Yes. It's a terrible, terrible name. Um, And as you can imagine with that crazy weird name, it's a bit of a weird book. And it basically mixes a lot of stories inspired by the book of Genesis in the Bible with other stories with a divine theme and antique fables and another bit which is also a bit odd about the production of handicrafts because why not if you're going to print the first book you might as appeal to as wide an audience as possible this book is really a literary pick and mix there's a bit of everything here with no real coherence Although it should be said, we're judging this based on second-hand sources because we haven't actually read Diagolus Creatorum Moratilis Artis ourselves. Our Latin is not that great. 
However, if we wanted to read it, we could. Any one of you, if you happen to speak Latin and you'd like to read a book that's a bit about the book of Genesis, some stories about fables and divine things, and a little bit on the production of handicrafts, you can read this book. Or you can try to read it. It's in the archives of the history of the Middle Ages at the Medeltides Museum in Stockholm, which is now closed, but uh, we won't get into that. Yeah, it's a massive shame that it's closed right now. Hopefully it'll reopen, and if it does, and if you're in Stockholm, it's well worth a visit. But maybe instead of trying to read Dialogus Creatorum Moraliatus, you should try and read the first book that was printed in Swedish, and you don't have to bother with Latin. This time, it's another German printer operating in Stockholm, Johan Farby, who prints the book Bok om djävulens frestelser, book about the temptations of the devil in 1495. So that's the first book printed in Swedish, the language. I, I like that like Swedes have never seen books before, so the title has to include the word book. <laughs> yeah. like, like, imagine if every book was just called that. It was book about whatever. <laughs> but like the title suggests, it is a book all about teaching ordinary people how to avoid the temptations of the devil. Well, that sounds very medieval, if you ask me. And it's actually a translation of a French book um, written by Jean Grierson, which doesn't sound very French at all. Mm -hmm. um, so this French book written by a person that doesn't sound very French uh, was translated because the Archbishop of Uppsala, Jakob Ulfsson, who's going to be present in the story for many episodes to come, he gave Uppsala University's first professor of theology the job of translating it into Swedish. And this man was called Ericus Nikolai. And in 1488, he was likely the first person to get a doctoral degree from the University of Uppsala five years after it opened. So lots of firsts there and lots of random facts that is, you probably don't need to know but we thought we'd like to tell you anyway and if you feel the need you to get some advice on how to avoid the temptations of the devil and you speak Swedish you can simply visit Uppsala University's website and the library part of that website has the book Book om Jövelens Frestelse right there and uh, they've digitalized it so you can read it online and you don't even need a library card I must say I applaud Uppsala University Library for doing this and for going to such great length to make their collections accessible in general. They have lots of their really, really old books digitalized. But yeah, I gotta be honest, Book om Jävelens Frestelser, a bit of a snooze fest. It's hard to read, not just in the sense that the Swedish language has evolved quite a bit since 1495, so the words and the grammar structure is different, but it's also written in this super squiggly-wiggly print. I tried to read it, but I gave up pretty quickly. But you can at least try to read a book that's over 500 years old online for free. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Someone who is probably finding that he's having less and less time to read these nice new books that are being printed is Stan Sture, because by the time we get to the 1490s, his ever-increasing power and wealth is starting to spell his own downfall. Lately, he's been engaged in more and more conflict with the Swedish church, mainly over land. 
Because let's remember, the church and the bishops are big landowners at this time, and consequently can hold a lot of local power in some areas. Not just churching and a spiritual power, but actual factual power as landowners. Among other things, in 1491, Stensture confiscates large amounts of land in Sörmland County and keeps it for himself, rather than giving it to the cathedral in Uppsala like he'd promised. Stensture's relationship with the Archbishop of Uppsala, Jakob Olsen, has soured significantly over this fighting of with the church over who owns what land. It only gets worse when Stensture manages to get his representative in Rome, a man by the name of Hemingad, to get the Pope's permission for Stensture to name his own candidates for the roles of bishops in Strangness, Linköping and Orbu, circumventing the power of the Archbishop and clergy significantly. By the way, Stensterer's representative in Rome, this Henning Gad, stick a pin in his name because he's going to come back in the story later on in a wide variety of roles, and he's a very interesting person to read about. But the church isn't the only actor in Swedish society who are increasingly viewing Stensture with equal amount of fear and contempt. So are his fellow noblemen in the Swedish council. In 1493, Stensture moves to strengthen his position vis-à-vis the council by taking Vesteros Castle from its current owner and his old friend Nils Busson Sture, who, in spite of the name, is not related to him. No, there's just lots of people called Sture and lots of people called Sten and lots of people called Niels, and they're all influential in the late 1400s of Sweden, it seems. Vesterol's castle, which we've seen feature in many revolts and uprisings so far, is valuable because whoever holds it gets part of the profit from the mining in the region and has the best access to the peasantry in Dalarna. And both of those things are good if you want to have a revolt or a war in 15th century Sweden, or just want to run the country with the help from the taxes of Dalarna. Nils Bosonsture doesn't really have time to do much about Stensture taking his castle because he dies the next year, but his son, Svante Nilsonsture, will join the opposition to Stensture and will become an important figure in the years to come, and he will not forget what Stensture did to his dad. No, and it's not just on the domestic front that Stensture is increasingly finding himself in trouble. By 1495, there is now renewed trouble at the border with Russia because it's been uh, the peace, uneasy peace that we said would last about a decade or so. Well, that's coming to an end. And since 1492, under Grand Prince Ivan, Russia has been increasing its military presence and built more fortresses along the border now um, because they control the area having conquered Novgorod. King Hans sees the possibility of a war between Sweden and Russia as an opportunity for him, since if Sweden was weakened by a war with Russia, it would make it easier for him to come in and take over from Stensture and the council. Through preserved letters, Russian chronicles, and the Sture chronicle, we know that Hans reaches out to Ivan and strikes a deal with him. Ivan arrests Hansa merchants in Novgorod and closes their trading posts, and instead invites Danish merchants to set up shop. In return, Hans, claiming himself to be the rightful king of Sweden, agrees to a Russian proposal that will move the border with Sweden further to the west. 
Yeah, so Hans is basically selling out Sweden to Russia in return for their support against Sweden. And in the autumn of 1495, this all spills over into all-out war. Russia picks a good time to attack Finland, since the whole Swedish kingdom is currently weakened by another wave of the plague that's come back round again. The Russians lay siege to the castles at Ni Slot and V Boy, and in response, Sweden conscripts every fifth man in Finland and send all the noblemen in the country who can sit on a horse to the eastern border. Stenstura also has a previous agreement with the Teutonic Order, who also come in to help their Swedish allies in some ways. And Stenstura decides that he must go to Finland himself. But first... He must get the banner of St. Joran, or St. George, from Uppsala Cathedral. After all, it did help him win the Battle of Brunkeberg 14 years earlier. In general, it's interesting to see that the war with Russia is still very much portrayed as being a crusade against the heathens in the East, much the same as it was in the 11 and 1200s. Or at least that's how the Swedish clergy, who are Catholic, wants it to be portrayed. They like to paint this conflict as a larger conflict between the Orthodox Christians in the East and the Catholics in the West, and legitimize Sweden's conflicts with Russia as being part of a larger Catholic war against the Orthodox East. An example of this is when the Archbishop writes to the Abbey in Vardstena in early January 1496 and says that not just Finland, but all of Christianity is in danger from the Russian attack. He says that the Swedes must pray and hold masses in honour of St. Erik and St. Birgitta in order that the Swedish fight will be victorious. Along the same line, in the summer of 1496, Hemming Gand manages to get the Pope to give his blessing to the Swedish crusade against Russia. But what about that banner of St. George? Did uh, Stensura get it in the end? Well, we know he did, because a year later, in 1497, he gets a letter from the Archbishop complaining, Why haven't you given the banner back yet? You've had it for ages and it needs to come back. <laughs> Which is a hilarious letter to, to read about. Yeah, it is. But for now, Stensdora, with his banner, is off to join the fight. But they're leaving it a bit too late. It's already autumn and ice and storms plague the Baltic Sea. On the 30th of November, he has to disembark and shelter on Åland, and by Christmas, he's only gotten as far as Åland, still pretty far from the eastern border where the fighting is taking place. And so while Stenstura has a rest in Orbu, we'll have a rest at the end of this episode. Uh, next time we'll see how his crusade, expedition, war, whatever it is, out east, uh, how that goes and uh, see what happens. And we do have a lovely review to read out first, though. And uh, how about you do that, Wasa? Five stars. Saludos desde Chicago a Suecia. I live in Chicago. I work for a company that has recently merged with a Swedish company. I have the opportunity to travel to Sweden and work on a daily basis with Swedes on video conference. I wanted to learn more about their culture and history to understand them better. I am a history buff, so luckily I found this podcast. I have enjoyed it very much. Elsa and Chris do an excellent job making the podcast informative and fun. I have even tried using the Swedish phrase of the week in meetings. 
brackets the English translation. They look at me strangely, but they can tell I am trying to pick up some Swedish culture, even if it's still in English. Chicago does not have as many Swedes as Minneapolis, but it does have a historically Swedish neighborhood called Andersonville. Although originally named after a Norwegian, Swedish immigrants in the late 1800s and early 1900s would start their American life there. The neighborhood still houses the Swedish American Museum. I started listening to the podcast late, but hoping to catch up to it live soon. And that's from Jose R. from Chicago via Apple Podcasts. Wow, great. Thank you so much, Jose. And thank you also to Josh, who got in touch on Twitter. And I've been listening to episode 87, when we talked about how the role of regent is still around in the modern Swedish constitution as well. But nowadays, it's just someone who the Swedish government can elect in the event of the monarch being temporarily incapacitated or unavailable to open parliament and things like that. And so Josh asked, how likely is this position to have been filled by some point by an existing heir? Like if the current king of Sweden and went to Disney World incognito for some stress relief, how likely would the government be to elect the Crown Princess Victoria as interim regent? And, well, that's actually something that has happened. Uh, we don't know if King Carl Gustav is a big fan of Disney World or not, but there have been occasions when he's gone away on holiday or travelled for other reasons, and Crown Princess Victoria has been the interim regent. And actually, a few years ago, they both went on holiday to Brazil together, and so then it was Victoria's younger brother, Carl Philip who stepped in as regent. Uh, there's no ceremony or formality around it. Most of the time, it's not something that the population even notices. It's just sorted out between a government office somewhere and, a, and the palace, and it's pretty much always going to be a member of the royal family. There would have to be a really dramatic event. Maybe the entire royal family goes on holiday to Disney World, or some disaster uh, to mean that someone else would get elected as the regent, and that would almost certainly be the Speaker of Parliament, uh, because that's a very high position in uh, in Sweden. Yes, but it's also reassuring to know that the throne is never vacant as such. If the king does decide to pop over to Disney World to hang out with Mickey Mouse, someone else will step in as interim regent. And yeah, most likely that will be one of his children. So thank you very much for an excellent question, Josh. And if you want to get in touch with us, then you can do so on social media, Twitter, Facebook, you've probably heard it by now, we say it at the end of every episode, or you can send us an email. Yeah, or you can instead uh, visit our website, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, which also has recently updated with all the past Swedish phrases, so there's a, a reason to go there too. Indeed, but for now, it's time to say, see you in Finland, Stansture. Yeah, see you there in two weeks. Hey, Dil. Bye-bye. <laughs>